Rock's Backseas Musical Podcast. It's easy to make the assumption that if something's been out of print for 40 years, it's because it sucks and no one wants to hear it. Sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's not. Since I started this podcast nearly four years ago, I've interviewed a number of really great musical artists and songwriters whose best work, for whatever reason, never had the chance to enjoy the public exposure that it deserved. I've talked about records that failed to get the proper distribution, records that failed to get the proper promotion from its record company. I've talked to artists who are victims of bad timing, others who are victims of poor mismanagement, misunderstandings, or personal tragedy. Whatever the case may be, one thing seems to be true. Some of the best music ever created has been lost or forgotten or never given the chance to succeed. It's almost as if releasing a hit record only happens when the stars are aligned correctly and everything just falls into place. And just like in the real world, those kinds of things don't happen very often. Like any piece of art, if it's neglected and no one gets a chance to hear it or see it, then it eventually fades into obscurity. Whether it's music or literature or sculptures, success or failure is often determined by the gatekeepers who run shit, the ones who make the decisions and write the checks. And often, they're the ones who decide what they're willing to let you listen to. And it's not always the best stuff. Rightly or wrongly, that's the way the business of music operates. So if you can imagine it, think of all the music that never saw the light of day because one person in a position of power simply didn't like it, understand it, or was willing to pay for it. In April of last year, I spoke to Jim Scafish, the man who was credited for single-handedly creating the new wave punk and avant-garde music scene in Chicago with his band Scafish back in 1976. Of all the interviews that I've recorded for this podcast over the years, very few have come close to the fascinating and equally maddening story of Jim Scafish. By all accounts, Jim Scafish was an innovative prodigy a certifiable, trailblazing genius who was not only ahead of his time musically, he was ahead of his time thematically, tackling mostly autobiographical subjects like bullying, sexual identity, gay bashing, and child abuse. Jim Scafish and his band were accomplished musicians whose onstage theatrics courageously reflected a multitude of taboo subject matter, including the sexual abuses of the Catholic Church and the song Sign of the Cross, which he performed in the 1981 concert film Erga Music War. If you sang a song about that today, it might not seem that shocking. But in 1976, it was really shocking. Where the Skatefish story gets really interesting is that after releasing two albums for IRS Records, including their self-titled debut in 1979 and their 1983 follow-up, The Conversation, both records would sadly go ignored. As a result, the Skatefish recordings would find themselves out of print and largely unavailable for the next four decades. Part of this is due to the unfortunate lack of investment in promotion. The other issue came when IRS Records President Miles Copeland rejected eight of the songs that had been recorded for the second album, all of which were replaced by a handful of songs that, while still great, hardly reflected the same thematic power of that first record. After years of trying to reclaim the rights to his own music, Jim Scafish was able to reissue his brilliant debut album in 2019. And just last month, he was able to not only reissue his 1983 follow-up, he was able to release all eight songs that IRS thought were too inappropriate to publish. 
The title of this long overdue reissue is The Conversation and the Rejects. It's not only a remarkable piece of music, it's a release that will cause you to wonder what might have been if only the gatekeepers hadn't gotten in the way. And so it's a real pleasure to welcome back the brilliant Jim Scafish on Baxi's musical podcast. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. I feel like I've been, uh, I've, <laughs> I feel like I've been badgering you for the last 10 months about this record no. and, and, and when it's going to be released. I've just been, I've been so excited about it because you know, having spoken to you and you know, really diving into Scafish music, I just feel like I just want to hear all of it. And, oh, thanks. And it's been, it's just been a remarkable story, not just, you know, that it's out, but everything that happened to get to this point, it must be just an amazing relief to finally have the conversation and the rejects being heard for the very first time. You're really right. It's a perfect way to put it because it is an amazing relief because the whole process, it's very rare that a record takes 40 years, right, to get reissued. And it literally was 40 years. But I think the thing that made it so intense is that, okay, when we did the second album, and I want to say up front that I was extremely grateful to Miles Copeland for signing me and all the good things that happened. But the second album and its whole process was so traumatic for everybody. And in certain ways, the aftermath was even worse than mm. the experience. So there's all these series of things that happened that made it really difficult musically, business-wise, artistically, and personally. And then this sort of limbo phase where I was working on this behind the scenes, but it wasn't really clear where it was going. And so the whole process of getting this reissued was really about 20 years. In other words, 20 years, when I think of the moment that it became, okay, I'm committed to reissuing this, was when I took the tapes, because I had the original tapes, and I took them to CRC Studios in Chicago in September of 2004, and I had them transferred to Pro Tools. That was really the first step of doing this. Now, when we had them transferred, the tapes were so old, they had to be baked so they would play. And so the particles go away from the tape. A lot of people know this, and then they have to be baked, and then you could play at one time. So the tapes were in the oven. I'm in the studio. They bring a tape out. They transfer it. So this went on for days and days. It wasn't like a, just a one-day process. But when we got those tapes transferred, that's when that was kind of the foundation of really being able to do this. And then it was a 20-year process from there. When that process had been completed and everything was kind of turned over to like a, in, a, in a digital form, how long had it, had it been since you had a chance to listen to those songs and, and listen to you know not only the conversation but also the songs that were rejected by IRS? Had you been listening to those for a while or was this like the first time you got back and and really had a chance to, to, to live with these songs again? Well, I had heard them occasionally. Okay, and what I mean by that, I didn't have a good copy of the rejects. Like, let's say I didn't have a really good copy. I think there was a CDR that I had did back in the day, and way, way back in the day. So I'd occasionally listen to it, and I'd occasionally listen to conversation. Also, it wasn't a really good copy. So... It wasn't like I was listening to them a lot 
And I didn't have a really clear feeling exactly of how they were going to end up sounding. So when it was all digitized, and then probably even more so when it was remastered, then it was really clear to me what we had. When I listened to the, the 1979 debut, you know, one of the things that really jumps out at me is you're credited with the, the punk and new wave and avant-garde music scene in Chicago. But when I hear these songs, especially on the debut album, there's such a sophistication and a courageously autobiographical component to it. And for a man who once called you a genius to reject the very thing that made Skafish so innovative and essential to begin with, the very reason he must have signed Skafish uh, early on in the, in the history of IRS, it's just so confusing to me because when I listen to it now, those songs in its original form, I, I wonder what the reaction might have been to it as it was intended to be released because even the songs that that are you know considered the rejects i don't find them to be as offensive and as inappropriate as miles copeland appeared to feel that it that it was tell me about that now that it's it's here you know what has been the reaction from people well i first off the reaction from the fans has been phenomenal and I, I never go into a project expecting that. In other words, hope and expectation are two very different things, right? So one always hopes, but I didn't expect it. And so the reaction from the fans has been phenomenal, just phenomenal. But going back to what you said, and I think it's really important because you're right, back in the day, Miles Copeland used to go all over the world. And I'm not exaggerating, saying he's a fucking genius. He's a fucking genius. He would say it to everybody. People would come up to me and say, oh, yeah, you're the guy that Miles Copeland says he's a fucking genius everywhere. Right. Right. So then what changed? And I could tell you what changed in the time frame from the summer of 1979 when I recorded the debut album and we recorded what was originally going to be the second album in November of 1982. IRS records changed. They went in a far more commercial direction, a more safe, toned down and corporate direction. That's what happened. So if you look at it this way, what I did with the rejects, and it made perfect sense to me as it does to the fans and my band in retrospect, it was the next natural step of what I would do. In other words, when you do a song like Disgracing the Family Name, you can't do another version of it. It's too distinctive. Sure. It's not like three chord rock where you could say, oh, you need to do three chord rock and you do different hooks over it. And that's cool, but that isn't what we did. So the songs were so distinctive that I knew that I would never try to duplicate them. There wouldn't be another Disgracing or Joan Fan Club. And so I thought, well, the way I wanted to go with the second album, I wanted it to be angrier. I wanted it to have deeper social commentary. I wanted to go into more daring production techniques. I wanted the band to become even more individualistically recognized on the tracks. Okay. And as an example, Javier Cruz's synthesizer work is almost unexplainable. Every single sound you hear on those tracks that you think is a gunshot, you think it's waves, you think it's a fire engine, it's a Moog synthesizer and modules of Moog synthesizers. And Javier Cruz was a wizard. We didn't have budget, obviously, to sit there and experiment and sit back and experiment. It had to be done on the fly, instantaneously. 
Okay, so what had happened is when IRS decided to change and become a much more watered-down label, there was no room for somebody like me anymore who was going to push the envelope as far as I possibly could. So in the beginning, and Miles Copeland has said I was the first American artist and the second worldwide to be signed to IRS Records. And if you listen to the beginning of IRS Records, it was groundbreaking. Yeah. And there wasn't a, there wasn't a unified sound. It wasn't like everybody was this or everybody was that. And then that changed. So think of it this way. IRS Records decides to go in a far more safe direction. I'm going in the natural direction of my first album to take it further. Right. Sure. And so when he heard this, he hated it. And he said, what's this? fucking shit you're singing about freaks and barbie dolls barbie dolls and freaks i won't release it he screams this to me over the phone and it was so devastating at the time because i couldn't believe it you know when you get into a relationship with anybody and you're in you hope or assume that the other person is in but obviously it was different for him and that he was willing to say look there's no room for a weirdo like you. You're going to either play ball or you're out. It was that simple. I've now talked to a number of different uh, IRS artists you know, over the, the last couple of years, and, and it seemed that once Miles had commercial success with IRS, I'm talking like the Go-Go's and, and you know, the police and REM, you know, once he had commercial success, it seemed like the money had to be funneled to keep those artists on the label and and if that meant that some artists that may not have sold as much had to suffer as a result of that okay i can understand that from a business point but to have gone at it at such a brutal way against you that i don't understand i don't really understand the tactic because it would be one thing to say listen I i'm sorry i i can't dedicate the resources that this music deserves at this time Maybe I can release you from your contract and we could sell this to somebody else. That was never an option and never presented to you. And I'm sure there must be some people who say, well, why don't you just walk away from IRS? Contractually, I assume that that was not an option and that you were still beholden to IRS, even if they couldn't support whatever you might have come up with. Well, what actually happened with it, when Miles Copeland launched into that ear-shattering tirade over the phone after he heard what was the second album? And by the way, the leadoff song of that submission was Let's Play Doctor. So when they're hearing lyrics like, I might just have the sex change, you know, today I might just have the sex change, but I don't exactly know which gender I need to be. He flipped. He hated it. And so what had happened is that he left me with three options. And he was very blunt with them. He said, option one, we're done. It's not going to be released. Okay. We call it a day. Option two, you let us put out the songs that we like, like a small EP, and then we're done with this. And those three songs were Wild Night Tonight, I Might Move In Next Door, and She's Taking Her Love Away. Those three. Or we can take those three, record new songs under our supervision, and make a second album. So when I was thinking about it, I didn't really feel that I had any choice except to try to make this work. And it was very, very difficult going through it. And what I mean by that 
it's a similar analogy to when, say, if you're married and you're not in love with your spouse. In fact, it's not working at all, but you stay there for the kids. So we were at a point where we had nothing going and we were broke and we had nothing going. In other words, so I thought, well, I'm going to do the best I can with this. And I committed to doing it. So then what happened after that is I told him we were going to do that, right? So Glenda Harrison and I started writing the eight songs that were going to be recorded. And we wrote more and we demoed them. Okay. And when IRS Records heard them, it was in April of 1983, they quote unquote approved doing it. Hmm. So then what happened from there is that Miles Copeland came to stay with me. And I was living in a very tiny three-room apartment behind my parents' house, right in East Chicago, Indiana, which is five minutes away from Chicago. And the first thing that happened is we had a meeting in this itty-bitty little living room, right? And it was my band, Glenda Harrison, Miles Copeland, and myself. And Miles Copeland looks at us and he says, you need to change. And he pulls out a cassette tape that he brought all the way from California. And he played Blue Monday by New Order. And he played Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. And he said, that's how I want you to sound. And (laughs) I knew I wasn't going to try to sound like them. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to. And I mean, I have respect for these artists, obviously. You know, Blue Monday was a great song. New Order told me backstage that they opened their first show with me at Brady's in Liverpool in September of 1980. Oh, really? So in other words, they were, yeah, right. And they they were wonderful. They were great. Michael Jackson was born and raised about 15 minutes away from me. Okay. (laughs) And so it wasn't like that. He said, sound like Hank Williams, but it's like still me sounding like anybody wasn't going to work. So, When we were in the studio, it was brutal. Now, in contrast to the original second album, which would be The Eight Rejects plus Wild Night Tonight, I Might Move It Next Door, and She's Taking Her Love Away, which flowed magnificently. Okay. And it was magical. I was super prepared because we didn't have much budget. And I was really prepared. The band was prepared. Everything on The Rejects was cut in one or two takes. And there's some very complex production techniques that were done extremely quickly. It wasn't like, let's experiment and maybe sit back and have dinner. I mean, it was really under the gun. It's interesting you say that because the last time we spoke and when you talk about the, the new, the new batch of songs that you came up with, you talked about how the band is literally learning these songs as they are recording them. You're giving out instructions, chord changes, whatever, whatever it needs. When I heard the the new record and I listened to the, I listened to the reject CD first, cause that was the one I really want to listen to. And I sure. hear, and I hear songs like five o'clock face or, or home invader, or even Bobby doll dream house. These are incredibly, I mean, there's some incredible musical compositions and, and those would, thank you. Those would be the songs I would have been doing, you know, doing somersaults over if I'm a record executive and I hear, you know, this kind of sophisticated music. So to go back and then, you know, record these songs on the fly for a band that is normally incredibly well rehearsed and incredibly ready to record or to perform live. That had to be such a 
frustrating situation for you. Well, it was beyond frustrating. It was brutal. Yeah, it was brutal. And so some of the songs for conversation, the band had never heard and they had to be cut right there. Some of them they had a little bit of familiarity with some of them. They weren't sure. So what happened with, and it's funny because I was thinking about this with Secret Lover, okay? Because on the 24-track tape, there is a mic feed which is having me call out the changes. And so what's weird is they were complex, you know, jazz changes. So let's say if you have rock and roll changes, E, A, D, right? These are like seven syllable, B flat seven, suspended seventh, okay? <laughs> F suspended seventh. C, D bass. It was like they're complex changes, right? So I'm having to call them out, and at least the band has to hear them a beat or two before the change happens. Because if you wait till when it's supposed to happen, it's too late. Right. Like, say, if it's if you're supposed to be on beat number one, and you go one, and then you call out the chord change, it's too late. So it'd be kind of one, two, three, B flat seven, suspended seven, F suspended seven. And I'm stumbling over them, right? But I had to really, like, spit these things out, right? So... What had happened is that was really, really hard. And what made it so much worse is that Miles Copeland kept screaming at us and he threw the tapes against the wall. Mm. Okay. So I found it really hard to keep my composure. And so I had to do a lot of meditation in the studio to sing because those songs are not easy to sing. Secret Lover goes up to a high C. It's not easy to sing. Right. In other words, right. And and getting the correct expression, like on a song like Victims of the Night or any of those, was really hard to do. Barbie Goodrich had to just go off by herself and drink tea all the time, you know, to try and relax her throat because it was such a tense and brutal atmosphere. So if we're looking even at Secret Lover, so imagine the scenario. It's almost like cinematic in a weird way. OK, we have to cut this track. So Javier Cruz is off doing a synthesizer thing. And he just was putting together a synthesizer thing, right? Kind of like a sequence and something that kind of decorated the track. And Barbie Goodrich and her sister Marie staying back up on it. So they're getting their little hook together. Then the tapes roll. I'm calling out the chord changes. Lee Gatlin plays this phenomenal bass line. I mean, on the fly. Okay. Yeah. Ken Bernowski does two incredible guitar solos on the fly. You know, this was just, okay, you have to go for this. And it was so tense and so difficult. But I think it's a real testament to the quality of the band because there are very few artists who could have produced anything under those circumstances. And then interestingly, too, when those eight tracks were cut, Gary Luizzo mixed all of them in a matter of hours. And those are phenomenal mixes. I mean, we it was like maybe, I'm not saying exactly the time, but like maybe two in the afternoon, eight in the evening. It wasn't even like a whole 12-hour day. Yeah. And I remember he said, this is going to be really hard for me. And everybody leave me alone. And so we did. Yeah. And I mean, he, Gary was not the kind of person when mixing who liked to have input anyway. So Gary was, oh God, he was so great with recording. And you can hear that on these tracks, right? And it's also Trevor, it's also Trevor Sadler, which we can talk about in a minute. But then it was a brutal experience. Then the record was done. 
And so when it came out in September of 83, it was received very, very badly. Okay, now here's the paradox of it. Looking at it now, and I hear it now, it was a good record. There were good songs on there, but it wasn't the record that I wanted to make. And it was forced, and it wasn't a record that anybody expected. I mean, the fan base did not like it for the most part. It sold half as much as the first album. So it was one where then you have to deal with that. I mean, it would have been obviously mixed if we would have had hit records off of it. And interestingly, there were radio stations throughout the world that were playing those songs. It's just IRS didn't push them enough to get them over the top. But a lot of them were played. A couple months ago, I spoke to Larry Meislevic and uh, Uh and he was just a, a, a gem of a guy. And what was interesting about that conversation is I, you know, I asked him about those sessions and very much like you say, it takes an extraordinary musician to record under those kinds of conditions. It's interesting when I talked to him, you know, he said that those were such frantic sessions and simultaneously he was also playing with Iggy Pop at the same time. He has very little recollection of what he actually played during those sessions. I can't even imagine you know, someone in, in an intense situation like that, not remembering some of it, but it just sounds like it had to be overwhelming for everybody. Not, not just you, the writer, but everybody had to struggle through this. It was a really unbelievably difficult situation to go through. And I mean, okay, it's one thing if somebody says, look, you know, there just isn't any budget, just try and get it done. But when somebody's screaming at you, yeah, like, well, you're trying to cut a track and then throws the tapes against the wall, and it was it was certainly one of the roughest experiences of my life, not just musically, but overall. And so I would feel, you know, my Slivic and all the band members, they were so good that when you hear these tracks, like you could hear Secret Lover mm-hmm. and it sounds finished. But a lot of it is that, say, with Lee Gatlin. His bass playing on Lover and Masquerade and Secret Lover were phenomenal. That was real off the cuff. That was just like, boom, we're doing it. He just throws down a bass line. And actually, those really helped. Made Up in the Dark was a song that came together very nicely and under that kind of dress. But it's very clear that what people perceived IRS records in pop culture at that time and what they were were two different things. Okay. Right. So in other words, it's it's the kind of thing that they made a conscious decision to go in that direction. So Miles Copeland was like, well, okay, you know, he's a fucking genius, but the first record didn't make any money. And then now we're in a commercial direction. And then here you are going weirder. Right. And I didn't think of it at the time, but now I look back on it and everybody said this. Who in the hell did he think he signed? Well, that's exactly right? it. That's exactly right. who my he, question. Who did he think he signed? Right. But I'm saying that at the time, I was so traumatized that I was just trying to get it done. In other words, through all this anxiety and all of this panic and all of this, in a sense, brutal atmospheres, I was just trying to get it done. It's like kind of when you're in that survival mode, you just have to try and get it done. And especially leading the band doing it and you know and then when we cut the video in september to wild night tonight 
the director had to storyboard it for the label, right? It was all storyboarded. So they knew what they were getting. And then MTV played it on the cutting edge one time and MTV then banned it because of the gunshot and the death scene early in the clip. So IRS knew that's what we were doing. It wasn't a big surprise. And MTV banned the video. Yeah. So what ultimately happened after that in an encapsulized version is that IRS records dropped me. They never did a second vinyl pressing. They never put it out on CD. They never even released it digitally. Same thing with my first album. So both of those records sat there for decades with absolutely nothing, you know, nothing. And then they're bootlegged and people used to accuse me like, you don't want your music out. And I thought, I could slap you for saying that, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't want my music out. This music that I spent my whole life doing under a great deal of pain, it wasn't say some silly vain rock star fantasy right this was music born of huge trauma of lifelong trauma and so when people would say that it was really offensive but i didn't have an avenue to deal with it if it had been social media and it's funny to think of a time before there was social media i could have easily went to instagram or facebook or twitter and talked about it but i had no outlet to express it so i was stuck having to deal with it you know, the record didn't sell. Critics accused me of selling out, which wasn't true. And that's why I made it a point with this reissue that I did not sell out. This is exactly what happened. I was forced into this. I didn't choose it. You know, it's a 40 year block between all this, this accumulation of, uh, of events and the point where you are able to release it. There's a, a big gap in your career here that is a question mark for some people because the conversation comes out, like you said, it's not overwhelmingly received well. It does, you know, from a distant sound like business point you, of view. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it was that, that, that maybe it was corporatized or a sellout or whatever, which is, as you say, couldn't be further from the truth. The band falls apart at that point. And at some point, right. and at some point, you have to go through all the recovery of this trauma. And you get to the point where you say, I want to get that music out. I want to get my hands on these master tapes. Some of which, if you go back to the, uh, the what's this compilation, you didn't even know those master tapes even existed. It took years before it was even, uh, discovered. Right. And to me, it's kind of like a, it's a little bit like a Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of thing. Huh. It's, you know, here's Jim Scafish, you know, traveling the world, trying to, you know, swashbuckle his way into getting these tapes. To have gotten your the access to that had to be an extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult process because your record companies don't necessarily just hand over masters like you know you know the the keys to the house. I mean it's it's complicated. Tell me a little bit about that and getting the tape specifically for this album, the the uh, the conversation and the rejects. Yeah, it's 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 great a great series of questions there. I'd love to discuss them. Well, with Conversation and the Rejects, I had all the tapes. I had the 24 tracks, which we didn't use because we didn't remix anything. And I had all the two track masters. So when I had those tapes, I was in possession of the tapes. But what had to be done is to secure the rights, which I had really good attorneys who were able to do that. And it was, it was an aggressive hostile move because the record company wasn't willing to do anything with me. Mm. I had a conversation with 
EMI because at the time EMI owned IRS. And it was sort of like one of the persons there claimed that he was a fan of mine. And he knew Joan Fan Club and all the sides. Oh, this is great. And he said, Well, you we'll get these back for you. At the last minute, he says, Sorry, can't do it, but we can do this deal. Mm. It was like this bait and switch thing, right? Right. And this was like around 2003. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do some crappy deal where they wanted me to pay them to put it out. And it, it was just crap, right? So the United States government created the ability for artists to terminate their rights after 35 years. It's, it's a law that went into effect. I was able to use that law with really good attorneys. We terminated the rights. And the record company didn't contest it. And so we terminated the rights to the first album, Conversation, and the audio recording of Sign of the Cross from Murga Music War. Right. Right. So what had happened is that the attorneys had to terminate the rights. Then with the audio on Conversation, I had that. It was just a matter of getting it digitized. And that process of doing it was very, very complicated because then it was, oh, God, how do I release this? Do I do two albums? Because the original title of the second album was I Might Move In Next Door. Right. In fact, even Billboard reported that in the spring of 1983. So I thought, well, do I just do all 11 tracks that were submitted and include the three? And I thought that won't work. It's too long for one album. So what I thought when I eventually came to terms with that if everything was mastered and remastered, I thought, I'm just going to put everything out there. I like to keep it simple for the fans. There's some great things in this collection. And you, you mentioned you know the two live tracks at the end, both Beefcake Touch and Sign of the Cross from uh, Erg the Music War. You know, one of the things that, that Larry and I talked about, and I and I tend to agree, having you know seen the footage of of uh, of Skatefish Live and, and and especially Erg the Music War is that none of your recorded material reflects the power of seeing the original band live. And having seen the footage, I think that's probably true. It's that, that you know, it's, it's hard to create that music, you know, in the studio. And that uh, the live version of Skayfish was really something to behold. And we've talked uh, before about just, you know, just on the visual aspect of it, but the musicianship in the live tracks, they're amazing. Thank you. Well, you know what it is? It, 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 looking back on it, I mean, in retrospect, it's the idea that there is a real intensity. I mean, it's maybe a shallow word, but think of intensity and keep multiplying it, right? When we would do everything. So when we were in the studio, like say a lot of the rejects captured that, but there was that extra level live. It's that extra level where it's sort of just transcends itself and that's what i was so excited about with beefcake touch because that was a previously unreleased recording and what's great about it that is simply a soundboard mono cassette recording so in other words that would be what you would have heard in the audience that day that's exactly what you would have heard and so it's a it's just like this sound our sound guy is recording it and then when i heard it and i thought oh i really like this a lot I mean, really liked it a lot. And so that's true. The live experience had another level. And that's, I think Larry Myslavik is a big part of that, of course, because Larry Myslavik was a force of nature. <laughs> and see, what it was is that one of the problems that we had 
and it's not really so much a problem anymore, is that, okay, if we had just did punk, or if we had just did weird stuff, or if we had just did pop or progressive jazz or experimental, you can get an audience, but we did everything. So it's like, you could look at a track like Beefcake Touch and say, there's progressive jazz, there's 20th century avant-garde, there's punk, there's hard rock, there's heavy metal, there's experimental, all in one. And the bass playing, the guitar playing, and the drumming, like this kind of rock trio thing, was just priceless to me. I was so thrilled to include it. And to think that it was so unvarnished, which is so nice. And I mean, not that we would ever try and do, quote unquote, all these studio tricks. I mean, like, say, try and make a bad track sound good or what people do to try and fix it in the mix. We didn't really do that. It just wasn't our thing. So when you hear that track, it's exactly what people saw that day. And that that was day was we were on in Toulon, France with the police, XTC, UB40 and English Beat. Good day. <laughs> a wonderful day. Yeah. And they were all those bands were so great to to work alongside because you know we're the low man on the totem pole right and they would treated us really really well and they didn't have to they could have been assholes and no one would have called them on it but i'm saying sting let us use the bass when ours broke just like oh here you can use the bass right yeah i mean things like that that kind of camaraderie was phenomenal on that tour because there was no hostility or you know when you hear these awful stories of like people hating each other and it's just so unproductive because it's hard enough to show up do it do it well and then if you talk about this hatred thing it's just such a waste of energy right there wasn't any of that we were so i was so grateful to be a part of it the last time we talked we talked about those early skatefish shows and the reaction of the crowd you know particularly in chicago but as you, you started to go you know other places to play audiences were losing their minds and sometimes violently because they just didn't understand the lyrics or the visuals that you, you brought up. I, I'm always amazed by how in tune the band was to all of that. Like nobody just said, Hey, I'm, I'm worried for my life when I'm playing in this band. Everybody seemed to be really on board with it. That's, that's pretty remarkable to have a, a group of people that are really working together as a team in a situation like that, where there could have been potential bloodshed had things gone differently well, oh sure and you know what it is thank god for them right i'm yeah. so grateful for all of them and let me put it this way not that i would you know drag this out and go through it but there are countless instances where we could have lost our lives and i'm not saying that hyperbolically okay when we opened for sean on us somebody pulled a gun on us right from the audience and the person who was filming the show from the audience saw the person with the gun pointing it at the stage. The Chicago police stopped the show before they shot at us. In other words, 6,000 people were coming to the stage to rush it to kill us. And the Chicago police came on stage and stopped the show. So that's just one example. When we were playing in Rockford, Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick was at the show. And this was in the fall of 1976. The audience had their hands together and they were walking toward the stage to attack us, like as a group, right? Like arm in arm. Right. Rick Nielsen stood at the front of the stage with a beer bottle over his head and was threatening to strike these people. 
Now, we know it wasn't Rick's physical prowess that stopped them. It was his celebrity. I mean, he had a fur, a fur coat, you know, and, and a baseball cap. I mean, he wasn't like the Hulk, right? <laughs> but he was willing to put his safety on the line because they were ready to kill us. And this happened over and over again. And so it was terrifying. And yet, in spite of it, we were able to still do what we were going to do and i think for the band it was obviously extremely traumatic but there was a commitment to the mission of the music again when you think of everybody who was doing it that a live performance it can't just be energy energy is great but if you can't play it's going to kind of be crap right right i mean there's only a short time in rock history where it's like not playing was okay you know, and then after that, that became super passe. Like, okay, you can't play. Well, practice guitar just a little bit. Get your, you know, you don't even have to be great. But I'm saying is that the band was virtuosic. Okay. Clearly. And so with that, Javier Cruz had a music degree, a bachelor's degree from Chicago State. Larry Meislivik had a degree in percussion from DePaul University. Okay. The band was of that caliber. You know, interesting, back in the day, Lee Gatlin had played with Prince for a while before Prince was Prince. And he reminds me of Prince because I always perceive Prince as a guy who could just play anything. He just falls into it. Lee was that way. When he joined my band, he learned the entire first album, note by note, in a couple of days because we were getting ready to go on tour. And he learned it in a couple of days. So it's this kind of, I don't want to say collision, but this synergy of things that happened. And so the fact that we were so multifaceted worked so terribly against us back in the day. And so when I even put out conversation in the rejects, I thought, well, maybe there's going to be people who say, you know, I hate this. I like this. And I haven't gotten that. I'm not saying that won't happen. It might. But all of the fans have loved all of it, which yeah. has been shocking to me. Well, let me pivot away from talking about the the band here for a second, and 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 talk specifically about you because I think what what it, what fascinates me about about your music is, and we've talked about this you know at, at length about the autobiographical nature of the lyrical uh you know part of of your music. I I think what separates you from a lot of others, many artists, musicians in particular, you know, use their skill and their creativity to sometimes conceal trauma that they may have endured during their lives where you've used that music to confront that trauma head on. And, and, you know, in 1976, I can't think of any artist that was willing to allow themselves to be as vulnerable as you did. I, and I don't know if that is, if that's necessarily the thing that separates the artist from a genius or, or what the, what the equation to that is, but to have gone down that road to really open yourself up to expose the things that have been a part of your life takes tremendous courage. It would even to today, by today's standards, but but back then, I don't know of anybody else that had the, the, the nerve and the courage to do that. I appreciate that, and it's true, because there's so many things that factored into this. And you're speaking of the part of this, which is true. In other words, my trauma was so horrific that when I 
got the Skatefish Band together because I'd been doing music my whole life, right? But when I formulated the Skatefish Band and said, okay, that was January of 76. And that was right after the White Lightning thing fell apart, right? Because I was in the group White Lightning with Donald Kinsey and Buster Jones right. and Woody Jensen. And that was Donald Kinsey who played for Bob Marley and Peter Tosh, right? Yeah. So after they did their first album, they brought me in to do the second album. We were supposed to go to Jamaica at Bob Marley's studio. And we didn't go there. We recorded in Chicago. But the group fell apart. The label dropped the group. And at that point is when I said, okay, I've got to do my own band. And that was like late 75, but January 76. And I thought, I'm I'm going to go completely with, you know, full out. And I mean, not to sound dramatic or maudlin, but it was for me, it was a life or death thing. It was like, well, what else do I have? I'm being bullied all the time, abused. What do I have? Well, I have music and I can do that. And I've done it since I was six and I'm going to put everything into it. And when I put everything into it at the time, I didn't think there would be as much pushback as there was. I think I bought into the illusion and hear the word illusion that rock and roll was truly a place for misfits. And rock and roll was a place for acceptable misfits, except like it's an oxymoron, right? Like you're a misfit kind of, but not too much. Where what I was presenting was so unattractive and so hard for people to take. So that was on purpose. And I thought, okay, this is all I have. And other things came together. Like, you know, Scott Cameron became our manager. He managed Willie Dixon, Muddy Waters, and Stan Kenton and me, right? And then the band came together. And if you think that this is in the Chicago area, this wasn't Paris or New York. This was in a very blue collar Frampton comes alive area, which is fine. You know, it's, it, it doesn't matter who another artist is, I'm saying, but that was the sensibility. And I was convinced that I was going to do this and that it would work. And that could be perceived as perhaps delusional or at least misguided. But I couldn't have did it without that belief. If I would have known how difficult it was going to be, I could have never did it. But it's interesting, though, that that in doing that, you showed a light on situations that occur in the world and occur to people. Everything from bullying to fat shaming to gender identity to, to the abuses of the church. I mean, you know, these were things that weren't even discussed at any level in 1976. I mean, you just... Just on the, the Catholic Church alone, that conversation was 25 years ahead of its time. And, you know, obviously what you sang about in you know, the sign of the cross was something that had been going on for generations. But you were the first one to have the, the courage to present it that way. That, I, mean, that takes I appreciate a, that. I just think that takes an enormous amount of, of, uh, of, of brass balls to, 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 have, to have done that and to have done it well in a way that— when you listen to that song for the very first time, you're not going to forget that song ever. You're just not. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, the brass balls comment is true, right? And yet, at the same point, there was, it's like, a, imagine always being in that flight or fight survival. That's what those days were like. It was always fight or flight, right? And 
obviously we were going to fight. And and a lot of times we'd have to be forced into flight. Like, you know, when we were canned off stage by 45,000 people in England and I was cut in the head from a, from a, a beer can that hit me. That was where you're forced into the flight, right? Okay. So what it is is that it was that intense. In other words, and people thought I was out of my fucking mind. Pardon my language. Like, they would think, who is this fucking guy? Right. You know? And because I was that brash and that bold all the time, it was that obsessive. And there were so many strange things that happened, like, say, when I met Muddy Waters and Willie Dixon. And they just loved me. And I thought, oh, fuck, they're going to hate me. You know, <laughs> like, is this a guy? Is it a girl? What in the hell is this? Right. And they just loved me. I mean, they were so supportive. And I'm saying that there was key things like that that happened that at least allowed us to get it to the point where we took it internationally, even though there wasn't any monetary success with it. Well, it's, it's interesting that you would have a connection with those guys. I mean, you know, really, when you think when you think about it, what you were singing about was maybe like an alternative form of the blues thematically. You know, like you, know, right. you, you had been through serious trauma, you know, everything from the abuse, the death of your, your dad. I mean, all these things, you know, accumulate. You know, how could how could a, a, a blues legend you not know, relate to some of that stuff in, in a certain way? I feel this tremendous reverence toward Muddy Waters and Willie Dixon. I mean, Muddy Waters invited me to jam with them on stage. He compared me to Mick Jagger in print. Willie Dixon referred to me as the best musician he ever knew. So in other words, they got it, but I didn't think they were going to get it. I thought that they'd have a problem with it, but it was interesting. They really got it. And they were just such wonderful people, you know, because it's like you can imagine them with all this attitude. I mean, like who they are, what they've done. And so I was a little intimidated meeting them. I mean, not intimidated like they're going to stab me, intimidate, but I thought, you know, I don't know what they're going to do. And they just welcomed me with open arms. I mean, at one time, Willie Dixon sat me on his lap and was telling me how to write songs. I mean, like, you've got to keep the story simple. You've got to make sure that people know what you're talking. I mean, he's doing this, right? And I mean, it was just a wonderful kind of a thing. And I always have this tremendous reverence toward them is probably the right word i have been listening to your music since uh you know for the last for the better part of the last two years uh religiously like it's this is now like the go-to music i've been listening to i've just you know completely fallen in love with it. I'm, I'm in awe of it really and when i got thank the, you and when i got the uh when i got the the new uh the new package it's it's so beautifully done i mean it just you know artistically and you know just the packaging is great. So much of this is a result of uh, of crowdsourcing and the Kickstarter campaigns that uh, that you've done. That, that's been a big part of this, and they clearly the fans have been waiting around for an awful long time for this for this moment to happen. And and as a as a new fan of Skayfish, I'm I'm delighted for you that you've had the opportunity to finally get this out into the public. It, it's just a tremendous body of work. Oh, thank you. And you know. There's so much more. There's a lot of stuff that I still have that hasn't yet been released. Besides like, okay, a boatload of songs that I have that haven't been recorded. There's lots of stuff ready to go that mm -hmm. could come out. Some of it had been released before on a smaller level and has been out of print. And some of it has never been released. So the goal is to get everything out there. 
And this was a real milestone getting conversation of the rejects out because it had the most trauma associated with it. Sure. There was so much music and even like getting the cover right was a real ordeal. You can't just put out the conversation cover. And so getting it all right took a long, long time. And really the sound of the audio is so fantastic. And that's because of Gary Loizzo, the engineer, and Trevor Sadler, who mastered and remastered. And I mean, Trevor Sadler's mastered for Madonna, Nine Inch Nails, Steely Dan, Ramsey Lewis, <laughs> David Byrne. And Trevor Sadler is such a godsend. Yeah. So was Gary Loizzo. So Trevor could take all of these 21 tracks and bring them together in a cohesive way. Now, granted, all the studio tracks were done by Gary, but even getting the live tracks to work in such a way where you could listen to it as a whole experience, right? But I mean, even to talk about when when the thing fell apart with IRS, I always kept it going to the best of my ability. Sure. I was doing a solo show for a long time. There's film footage of those of those shows. There are there are albums that came out and albums that didn't come out that I haven't released yet. So I want to get it all out there. And like I said, I was so pleasantly surprised by the Kickstarter because I thought, well, this record wasn't well liked and they don't know what the rejects are going to be. So I just asked for a little bit amount of money and it was a lot more. And I was surprised by that because, you know, you can't go in cocky and expect those things. It's just a stupid thing to do. It's like if you put out a record and you expect it's going to do this or do that, it's just stupid. So I was really excited when everybody got behind the Kickstarter and you're right. The package, we spent so long working on it. It's like a good 20 years working on this. And I was thrilled with the way that it turned out. I really was. In other words, it wasn't like, oh, well, this is good and that's not good. It really makes me happy. Yeah. And the fan reaction has been phenomenal. And so it's great to be able to say this is finally out there. A lot of musicians don't ever get their music back. A lot of musicians die before they can reissue it. A lot of musicians don't have the way of doing it. Okay. So I get that this is not a given, that it's not something anybody is just entitled to. I get that. And so I'm so grateful that this has come together. I'm just so grateful. The, the one last thing I wanted to ask you about, because I don't know if anyone's going to ask you about this, but uh, when I was reading through the uh, through the through the album, I was like, oh, wow, that is that's kind of cool. One of the big surprises on on the entire record is the vocal on Mother is Waiting. It's your it's your actual mother singing. It's and, my mother. And you know, yep. she was a, an opera singer. And you can hear where you get your talent from. There's got to be something very emotional about putting your mom on this on this record even back then and even something kind of emotional about hearing that track now oh sure because you know she had passed away in in 2002 and so it was very emotional and you know when we did when we had her do that i thought well you know we've got to do this toned down album and i thought well what can i do to give it something really special because that was cut for conversation and i said i'm going to write this little opera blurb for my mother and I wasn't sure if Miles Copeland was even going to allow it to be on. But here's the thing, though. He cut it in half. So in other words, the version you hear has a whole section, a whole verse out. Really? So, yeah. So that's something eventually I would like to be able to get that out, too. I have it. You know, I have yeah. the rights to it. But in other words, there's a whole nother verse. So I think the song now is like a minute and 30. 
And I think totally it comes out to like 230. You know, so there's a whole birth there that he cut off. So even then, he had to exert his control over it, right? But no, her voice is, is phenomenal. And the thing I'm saying is that she could have obviously, quote unquote, made it as an opera singer. And she decided not to because then she got married and she had kids. Yeah. I mean, three, right? But I'm saying she always sang like at events and churches and she did some little opera things. And so I thought this would be great to have her on this cut because when she hits that high note, that high B flat at the end, yeah, you know, that's like a note that very few people could hit. She did a beautiful job with it. Yeah, one take. Astounding voice. Really was. Yeah. I'm really glad she was out there. Of course, it's emotional, you know, because she was a great singer. And at the same time, um, what's the right word? Abusive to me? Um, Yeah, that's the right word, you know? Yeah. In other words, so it was a difficult relationship. It wasn't as if that, oh, you know, here's my weird son and I'm standing behind him. I mean, she really had a real problem with who I was. I mean, it was, it was abusive. Yeah. But I'm saying that we have the music thing in common. I mean, I played piano for her. I accompanied her, you know, I played piano for her, wherever she'd go and all that. But I'm saying, I thought it was wonderful to get her on record with this. And I was really happy that we did it. And she, she killed it. She did. Jim, I'm so happy for you. And, and like I said, I, I, I really do love the new record a lot. I think it's, I think it's just, it's, oh, it's a great, you. it's a great document for you, you, what you've had to endure and what your music you know really stands for. And I, and uh, I'm so glad we had a chance to do this again. Always glad to talk to you and wonderful to connect to everybody, wishing everybody well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm very grateful for your support of the record. We'll talk again. I hope so. Jim, thank you very much. Take care, buddy. Take care. Take care, buddy. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. The Conversation in the Reject from Skatefish is now available, and it is amazing. You should also check out the reissue of self-titled debut and the incredible compilation, What's This 1976 from 1979. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to like it, share it, rate it, tell all your friends about it. Follow along on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. You can also email me at backs at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. Thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.